0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and today I will be speaking with Dr. Rachel Morley, lecturer in Russian cinema and culture at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London. She is co-chair of the UCLC's Russian Cinema Research Group. Today we'll be discussing Dr. Morley's 2017 monograph, Performing Femininity, Woman as Performer in Early Russian Cinema. Dr. Morley, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for the invitation, Diana. It's great
0: to talk to you about my book. You too. So uh, to start off with, can you describe a little bit your research background and how you became interested in studying this topic?
1: yeah sure. um my interest in this area first was sparked as part of my undergraduate studies. I studied at UCL and in the final year of my degree, I had the opportunity to take a course in Russian and Soviet film. It was a survey course that covered the whole period from the very beginnings the pre revolutionary period up to the present. This was in the late 1990s, and it was one of the first courses um, in any British university to to run in this subject. It was taught by Professor Julian Graffy, who's one of the major experts in Russian and Soviet film. The first films that we covered were Evgeny Bauer's um, early melodramas. We studied, I think, two or three of them. And from that moment, I was intrigued by them. They were stunningly beautiful. They were not like anything I'd ever seen before. My knowledge of silent cinema up to that point was the American comedies from the 20s. um, And I just was blown away by how beautiful they were. This led to me writing an MA dissertation on um, films by Evgeny Bauer, I wrote a a dissertation on gender relations in 16 of Bauer's films, which was then converted into a published article. And on the back of that, I began to um, work on my PhD thesis. So the book is based on my PhD thesis. And it was while I was researching um, the Bauer article that I suddenly realized, actually, probably in the po- at the point at which I was writing my conclusion for that work, how many of the female protagonists in his films were cast as female performers. And as I became sort of more interested in why that might be and what the reason for this was, I realized that it wasn't just Bower's films that had this obsession with the figure of the female performer. It was films by other directors from this period. So this figure is sort of, she's ubiquitous in the films of this of this um, generation, but also um, in, in works of all the different directors. And that intrigued me. I wanted to know why. So that became my PhD project, which then became the book.
0: And can you talk about what you discovered, sort of uh, give us a brief summary of your study and what your hypotheses and arguments are?
1: Yeah. So I started off looking at different ways in which the figure of the female performer is represented in films made between 1908 and 1918, I wanted to try to understand why this figure was so popular, why she was in so many films by so many different directors, and also what different uses um, the directors attached to this persona. Why was she so useful to them? Um, Maybe... I sort of concluded three main three main arguments I think. First is that on one level it is, I suppose, a reflection of contemporary social reality. Um The films are social documents to some extent, and this was a time, you know, the end of the 19th, start of the 20th century, when more and more women were um, taking to the stage and, and starting careers as actors or performances of different types. But not just that, also becoming more visible in society. So on one level, it reflects that reality. That's perhaps the least interesting argument I, I found, I think. The second one, and the one that I find most intriguing myself, is that she, the figure of the female performer, actually becomes a sort of artistic strategy, if you like. The films that were made in this period are the, the earliest films made in Russia. So obviously, as well as telling stories, they are the directors are trying to find ways to express those stories. So they're the first steps towards the creation of the new art form of cinema, which we all know so well today. What I felt and what I observed was that the figure of the female performer was given a privileged position in the place of filmmakers' experimentation with cinematic technology and with... um, developments of how to tell stories that's quite an abstract we can talk about that idea a bit more hopefully it's quite an abstract thing to state just like that but also I thought it was interesting in terms of what we could learn from film about the cultural and artistic landscape of this period in Russia more broadly Um, the films don't exist in a cultural vacuum most of the people who came to work in these films had worked as creative people in other art art forms of theatre variety shows, art, photography, and so on. So it's also interesting to see how this figure is used as part of their dialogue with other art forms and to see what they retain from those existing art forms in as they um, develop this new art form of film, but also what they maybe reject and what they get rid of.
0: Yes. And uh, later in the interview, we'll get into the specifics of these films and some examples. Uh, Now you talk in your introduction about your theoretical framework, uh, which you refer to as bricolage. Can you talk a little bit more about how you draw on gender theory and film theory and other theoretical apparatuses to lay out your argument?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the idea of bricolage appealed to me basically because it enabled me to to choose widely from among different um, existing methodologies. Um, I always sort of feel a bit anxious about choosing one theoretical framework and, and in, attempting to impose it on all the material I'm looking at, because I think... There can be a danger, and I'm probably being contentious here, there can be a danger that that will then take over the primary material that you're looking at and somehow sort of force readings that fit the framework. So bricolage um, enabled me not to do that so much. It also enabled me to remain faithful to the, um, the ideas and the times in which these films were made. So I do draw on uh, Judith Butler's theories of performativity. I do draw on um, contemporary dance theorists and their responses to different forms of dance and so on, and in particular feminist film critics and so on. But I also try to use um, theoretical writing that was contemporary to the films, so um, drawing on writings um, by people like uh, Alexandra Kalantai to some extent, but also artists who wrote about their work, so Isadora Duncan, for example, and some of the novelists who were using their, their work to express ideas my method, my approach is detailed analysis over broad comment. Um, the reason for that really is that the films are so complex, they're so dense with details, and the details are so subtle that if you don't indulge in detailed analysis, then really it's hard to do them justice. So the book doesn't aim to be an exhaustive account of all the Russian films that feature uh, female performers, um, although I try to mention as many as possible. Instead, I select case studies, so key examples of the use of the female performer, which, in my view, illustrate the broad tendencies and the broad uses of this figure throughout the period.
0: Uh, Now, again, also in your introduction, uh, you write about the discovery of uh, 286 pre-revolutionary Russian films and the major influence that this event had for the study of early Soviet cinema. Could you describe this discovery and its impact on cinema scholarship?
1: Yes, I mean, it was sort of one of those moments really where a subject is almost turned upside down by um, by new knowledge coming to light. It's not completely true to say that they were just suddenly rediscovered, because obviously there were—they were, they were no, these films were known in the Soviet Union, and Soviet film scholars were writing about them throughout the sixties um, and seventies and so on. But it was really only um, towards the the end of the late eighties, with the changes brought in by Glasnost and Perestroika, that these films were made open to people to view in the West. Until then, we have been able to read about them in um, in particular in Jay Lader's book Kino, um, published in 1960, an English language account of films that Lader had seen while studying in Moscow. Um, but nobody really had seen these films firsthand. So suddenly they, they were brought out of Gastron in Moscow, near Moscow, and shown to the world, first at the Pordenone Film Festival in Italy in October 1988, and then subsequently at other festivals, including one at the British Film Institute in London. And these were major events for two, or well, more probably, groups of scholars. So first of all, it was an opportunity for scholars of silent film in of other countries to look at what was going on in Russia at this period, which hadn't perhaps previously been known. And we, we get some very interesting responses from scholars like Miriam Hansen and Heidi Schlupman and Kevin Brownlow and so on, who work in early cinemas of other countries on the back of those screenings. But it also forced Really, a rewriting of existing conceptions of early Soviet film history. Um, the tendency before that had been to sort of assume that cinema was born from the revolution and that that it came at the same time as the revolution and turned the world upside the art world upside down in the same way that the revolution turned um, other structures upside down. But once we saw these films and realized that actually a lot of the personnel who were involved in the pre-revolutionary film industry had carried on working in the post-revolutionary film industry, that forced a rewriting of some of the assumptions that had been made about filmmaking in the 1920s. Lev Kulishoff, for example, who's a, um, a Soviet filmmaker famous for his film from 1924, The Extraordinary Adventures of Mr. West, he actually began his cinema work with Yevgeny Bauer, working as Bauer's set designer and art director on some of his late films. And Kulishoff's thinking on film is informed by Bauer's. Oleg an actor in the pre-revolutionary film industry, would then, in the 20s, go on to become a director, making a film called Prostitutka, The Prostitute, in 1926, which was an early example of... Um, well, an attempt to make a health education film against the sort of the dangers of prostitution that would also be entertaining for viewers to watch. He, like a, he was an actor, he also worked with Bauer. So this sort of forced a rewriting of what we knew about twenties film, and it it threw up some really interesting, para, you know, uh, continuities between the two periods that up until that point hadn't been known about.
0: Uh, And just can you talk a little just a little bit more about what the Russian film industry was like in the pre-revolutionary period, sort of maybe in contrast to uh, post-1917?
1: Yes. So um, feature filmmaking started later in Russia than elsewhere in Europe. So for the first 12 years or so, if you went to see a film in Russia In in early Russia, it was uh, a French film, most likely. The first films were shown in Russia in 1896, and for the next 12 years, all of the production companies that opened studios were French. Lumière, Patifraire, Gourmand, and so on, they all opened studios in Russia. The first Russian production studio was opened in 1907 by a man called Alexander Drankov, and he is the producer who's credited with releasing the first Russian feature film in 1908. Going back to 1907, Alexander Hanjankov opened his studio, and that studio, which he opened with his wife, would go on to become probably the most famous studio of the period. Throughout the next sort of five years or so, a few other studios opened here and there, but it was really 1914, 1915 that the film industry took off in pre-revolutionary Russia. So the numbers of studios grew massively. So from 1913, when there were 18 studios, by 1915, there were 47. The size of the studios grew. They were employing numerous directors, cameramen and so on. And the number of films made grew and so on. So by the time we get to the end of the pre-revolutionary period, it was a really flourishing privately owned business. Um, Lots of money to be made, both for the uh, studio owners and for the people involved in the industry, but also an extensive infrastructure of studios and cinemas that then the Soviet government could draw on. But the pre-revolutionary film industry sort of continued to function privately until a couple of years after the revolution. It wasn't until the 27th of August 1919 that Lenin signed a decree ordering the nationalisation of the industry. And then in September of that year, the State School of Cinematic Arts was founded to train a new generation of Soviet filmmakers who would make Soviet films. So it really, they took all that infrastructure and then were able to adapt it for their own uses later. So that's the significance of the industry in that respect as well.
0: Mm -hmm. So
1: the sort of golden age,
0: this uh, very productive period in uh, pre-revolutionary Russian cinema is quite short, right? It's only about five years before. Yes,
1: 1908 up until probably 1918, 10 years. but, But the first films up until sort of 2000 and, uh, sorry 1912 1913 they were short films primarily and not so well developed so absolutely a very short period of time in which a huge number of films were made
0: now can we talk a little bit about the form of these early films you write for example that in some cases the intertitles have not been preserved so what are some of the difficulties in studying these films just by virtue of this form
1: it is difficult and really you always have to be quite careful about making assumptions that the version of the film you're watching is the version of the film that people that the director intended or the filmmakers intended and the version that people would have seen. I think in most cases, the original intertitles haven't been preserved Um So, most of the versions that we see that have intertitles in them are all reconstructed. So, this was a task that was undertaken by a team of experts in Russia, sort of led by Yuri Tsivyan and Rashid Yangirov, and people like that. And they undertook the mammoth task, really, of reading all the existing film press from that period, because we have a lot of resources in terms of the journals that were made during that time, and using the the very detailed synopsis of films that were published in those journals to work out what the intertitles might have said. We know where the intertitles occurred because there's a gap in the film and a cross across the frame which shows that there would have been an intertitle at that point. But the challenge was to work out what the intertitle would have said. Sometimes reviewers were very helpful. They would directly quote the intertitle in their review, but often they didn't do that, so it was a, a question of piecing it together. So we do have to be careful. Peter Bagroff, who was um, the head of the archives in Gaston Font until quite recently, warns that we, we have to always be aware that we can't be 100% sure that any of the films we're seeing are in the form that they would have appeared to contemporary viewers so, yes, it's challenging. So some of what we're saying is assumption, but those assumptions are backed up to, as well as they can be through reference to contemporary film press and so on.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's quite a, challenging, quite a challenging process. It is, yeah, it's
1: mm-hmm. challenging,
0: yeah. Uh, you mentioned before uh, that at least on one level, these films are sort of a reflection of the social and political and cultural changes that were pl- taking place at the turn of the century in Russia. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what those changes were and how they start to be reflected in the films of that period?
1: Yeah, so what, again, I think is quite interesting in the way that the films um, deal with social change, you might expect, right, just before the revolution that it would be issues of class that would dominate. Um, In fact, the main contentious point is really gender. Okay, so these the tensions that were... All around society at that time as as um, prior, as things shifted are are mainly expressed in these films through gender conflict and through the clash of male and female protagonists who are shown to have different worldviews and those worldviews clash. There are some films that treat class issues um that's for sure and there are some films um you know that make that the main subject of the narrative but it is striking that gender is shown to be the key thing so just to give one example of an, a film by Yevgeny Bauer from 1913 Twilight of a Woman's Soul the female protagonist in that film encounters two different male protagonists who in different ways treat her badly what's striking is that they are representatives of both social classes at the time one is a worker and one is a prince and yet both of them treat her in the same or similar shabby way. So um, there's no sort of classic class analysis in that film. It, it's primarily to do with gender. Um, so that's the main shift, really. And the cultural shift, political shift, you don't really get much... You know, that they don't include much comment on political issues, probably because there was censorship and also probably because viewers weren't interested in that. They wanted melodrama. Um, But uh, the cultural changes as well, I think, are interesting in terms of, as I've said already, cinema being developed as a new art form and what that meant in terms of the way that people consumed culture and the sort of culture that they wanted to consume are also things that are explored in the most sophisticated of the films made in this period.
0: Uh, you write a little bit about uh, the adaptation of 19th century literature uh, for these early films. Uh, how common were these adaptations and did they reflect or challenge the gender ideologies ideologies of those novels?
1: Adaptations of literary texts were really common, 19th century in particular, um, especially in the very early years of the film industry. Um, I think Partly that's to do with the fact that they gave the filmmakers a ready script, you know, they could, um, and in those cases they do tend to stick to the script quite closely, although in condensed form because they were short films, so they're not challenging the narratives that we get in the 19th century texts, but it was also a question of trying to enhance the The so-called social and cultural respectability of cinema. So in the hierarchy of arts, at the start of the 20th century, cinema was considered quite low-down. It was an attraction, it wasn't an art form in its own right in the early days. And so there was a sense among some directors that if they adapted 19th century works, that would be good because it it would mean they could claim that they were educating people. Okay, so Piotr Czardinin, who is one of the key directors from this period, between 1909 and 1915 adapted at least 12 19th century texts into films. And he actually wrote an an article which was published in a film journal arguing that um, cinema should be praised for doing this and for giving the illiterate masses, that's his term, not mine, the opportunity to become acquainted with these great works of art. As film got more sophisticated and as the as other directors started to do it, then 19th century texts were used slightly differently. They were used as something to work against, assuming familiarity with the sort of conventions and stereotypes of that that genre, um, they would sort of work against them. Um, And also another change from about 1912 was that the sort of works that were adapted shifted. um, Instead of using classical texts, famous works from the 19th century, modern and contemporary texts were being adapted instead. Probably for commercial reasons, that's where the public interest was. Um, but again, that's quite interesting. Cinema didn't feel the need from that point on to bolster itself with its association to 19th century literature in the way that it did at the start of the of the period.
0: So in a sense, maybe, could you say that it sort of starts to distinguish itself as opposed to an extension of literature, it becomes something that people see in its own right?
1: I think so. Yes, from that point on, and, and it gives it the confidence to not rely so to not rely on, on adaptations. So we start to get filmmakers writing their own scripts. Yevgeny um, Bar, for example, wrote quite a few of his first scripts for his films, but then also bringing in film screenwriters who would write tailor-made scripts for the film studios.
0: Uh, And Can we talk a little bit more about Evgeny Bauer? You mentioned that uh, your earlier work Mm -hmm. focused on him. What was his role in shaping pre-revolutionary Russian cinema and specifically the portrayal of female characters?
1: Bauer is um, the major figure really in this period of filmmaking and it's really quite extraordinary that he's achieved that status given that his career in cinema lasted only four and a half years. So he joined cinema relatively late. He entered in 1912 as a set designer and made his first film in 1913. Um, but then, unfortunately, he died in June 1917, still in the middle of making a film. He fell over, broke his leg, was confined to hospital and got pneumonia and died. So he was only active for four and a half years. He died early at the age of 52. But he, his output was extraordinary, both in terms of quality and number. We know that he directed at least 82 films in Four and a half years, that's amazing, sort of 20 a year. And we know that 26 of those films have survived at the moment. We're always hoping there are more out there somewhere. So he, he was prodigious, but it's mainly his um, creation to d- the development of cinema as an art form, I think, that um, is what's earned him this title. So he is known for his sort of attempts to... Innovate and to experiment and he did this in all sorts of different areas. First with set design. I said already that he started his career in cinema as set as a set designer. His sort of way of building sets for the for, for films was so distinctive that it was referred to as the Bauer method of set building in the 1920s. and these sets that he built were built in order to try to overcome the flatness of the screen to make film different from theatre and to give a sense of what they called then stereoscopy. So a sense of depth and so on. He also took great care to make sure that the sets functioned meaningfully in terms of contributing to the film's analysis of its protagonists and its themes. So when you watch a Bauer film, you need to look very carefully at the objects that are placed within the set because they they are there for a reason. Um, you know, similar to people saying about Chekhov that if there's a gun hanging on the wall in, in Act One, it, someone will have fired it by the end of Act One. Act Four. Bauer is similar to that. If there's something in the room, it's there for a reason um, to express something. He was also interested in lighting. He worked collaboratively with his regular cameraman, Boris Zavilev, to create different styles of lighting, which again could be used to express, be expressive and create meaning. Um, and they also, he and Zavilev I, explored the camera 's potential to meaning, so they experimented with different types of camera angle, different types of shot framing, and really clever ways of making the camera move in early film. The camera was static in fact, convention dictated it should be because they were trying to replicate theater and the ideal view of a theater audience. but Bauer sort of changed all that with regard to his themes that 's another way in which Bauer is often seen as being so important. He was referred to as a woman 's director. Whether we take that to mean that women liked his film or that his films were focused on women, I think it probably means a bit of both. Um, and so he is known for having created films which do put forward a female perspective and which do show sympathy for female protagonists and which do sort of say... Uh, say a lot about about them um and their relationships with male protagonists as well so even though sometimes his if you look at the bare plot summary of his films you think wow that looks really conventional and stereotypical and what's new about that it's the it's what he does with them it's the way that he tells his stories and the way that he turns these scripts into um works of art and films that are interesting as films, as well as being a good story sort of told in a good way. That's really, I think what his contribution is.
0: Uh, and we'll get a little bit more into his individual films in a minute. Um, can we talk uh, now about your central figure in your study, the recurring mm-hmm. character of the female performer and how, how does she reflect these changing perceptions of women in Russian society? And how does the actual sort of real life perception of female performers get reflected in, in the films? Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so I'm not sure that the concern to reflect the status of real life performance is actually so fundamental in the films, although it sort of is drawing on the fact that there, there was an influx of pe- of women onto the stage in in this period. I think it's more that it reflects their increased visibility in society, but primarily, I think what the what the sort of main point of this figure was that it enabled a shift from performing objects, if you like, so where the early performers who tend to be amateur performers um, and dance, you know, not as a profession, um, they are invariably treated as objects to be watched, to be looked at, and the viewing people, are, the audiences are nearly all male protagonists. So there is a sense that this is a very, a rather sort of um, limiting undertaking for them, is they're being treated as objects. The the main shift comes in about 1912, 1913, when all of a sudden we're getting the performers cast as professional performers. And that marks a big change. It's announcing that they've made this choice. It's announcing that it makes them independent. And it's announcing that... um, they're there, they're in public. So they go from being performing objects to becoming performing subjects. And that, I think, is the, the main dynamic through which this sense of changing gender roles and the visit the increased visibility of women in society comes through, through that figure. So let's talk about some of the specific films
0: that you focus on in your book, starting with the first, uh, Stenka Razan, um, and how uh, did Drankov portray the female performer in this film?
1: Okay, so the performer in this film, she is um, this draws on the legend of Sienkarazin, who is a Don Cossack, famous for rebelling against the Tsars in the 17th century. I think I'm right about that. Um, and he captures a prince, an oriental, a Persian princess during one of his um, mission, uh, one of his rebellions. So right from the start we know that this woman is a captive, so she's his possession, and he treats her like this. He drags her around. But the sort of this is the first Russian film ever to have been released the first Russian feature film made in 1908 and right from the start we see the female performer being used as in this key role so in this film um it's made clear that she's an object because they require her to dance for her and as she dances she's desired they rasin is obsessed by her and her dance is a sort of expression of his obsession Um, This means that she's problematic. She's stopping the leader from doing what he should do and leading the rebels. And so they hatch a plot. They persuade their leader that she's unfaithful and he believes that plot. And at the end of the film, he murders her. He picks her up and throws her into the river. So there's this sense that this female performer is dangerous. Um, She obsesses men. They're obsessed by her and that ruins male um, society, but also distracts them. And therefore the best thing to do is get rid of them and get and so on um so that's how the the sort of the trope starts and the sort of the development of it is quite quite sort of complex and and it sort of stretches throughout most of of the first sort of 10 years of filmmaking but by the end we have filmmakers Playing with those associations, using the type of the Oriental performer to undermine the male protagonists, showing them to be enthralled to this obsession with the idea that women are dangerous and women who perform are dangerous and so on, by undermining those old fashioned, outdated responses and instead showing the female protagonist. For what she is, for a performer. So the film I sort of have in mind when I'm saying this is a film by Eugenie Bauer from 1914 called Child of the Big City, and in that film you get an extraordinary sequence of an Oriental dancer, dress a Salome dancer. Um, that's it's very very complex, but it's doing all sorts of things. But one of the things that it's doing is undercutting that that figure first by the fact that. The, the person performing the dance is Bauer's wife, Emma, Emma Bauer, who was a well-known um, performer in her own right. So he gives his wife a cameo role in his film. She would have been known to audiences. So they would have not been seeing a dangerous um, femme fatale on the stage. They would have been seeing Emma Bauer doing a cameo in her husband's film. Um, but she's also not the type. She doesn't fit the physical type. She's no Idol Rubinstein, who had portrayed Salome in Bauer's films earlier in that decade. She's a, a middle-aged woman. Um, she's not the sort of Salome type physically. So in all of these ways, Bauer is poking fun at the use of this type and undermining his male protagonist who believe in it still because his male protagonist believes that these these women are like that and that continues so we get a wonderful film in 1916 called Baldy in Love with a Dancer Baldy was a comic character who made lots of films about his exp- um, adventures with various different um, people And he becomes obsessed with the Salome dancer and chases her around um, trying to get her to dance for him until at the end she gives in and and they all start dancing. So, yeah, complex shifts. I'm not sure I've just I've done it justice. But it's about reclaiming, I think, these stereotypes in later films that are sort of dealt in, dealt with more um, um, without sort of analysis in the early period of filmmaking.
0: Mm. And there's another film you talk about, uh, Vadim, and how it uses this uh, figure of the female dancer to, as you write, shift towards the adoption of the female narrative perspective. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so Vadim really builds on the first Stinkrazin film from 1908, and Vadim was made in 1910. So we get a very similar sequence in that film where a young girl, she's a boy as Ward, it's an adaptation of um Lemnitz's story, and she is repeatedly forced to perform for um, the man who has taken her in after her parents died, and she is used as this object. He, she's brought out to perform in front of the drunk guests, who are all male, who the man entertains. And he is so infatuated by her that he follows her back into the bedroom after the performance and, and tries to force himself on her. And this is only stopped by the wife coming in and blaming the girl for being the one who's enticed her husband's led him astray. Um, where this film differs from Stjankrazin is that at the end of that film, I said already, the girl, the, the dancer is murdered. Really, the audience is encouraged to cheer when she's thrown into the Volga. Various reasons for that. Firstly, because she's foreign. She's an, um, she's not the Russian audience. But also, the whole tone of the film is celebratory. Tragedy's been averted. Razin and his brigands can now continue on um, doing what they're meant to do. So we don't really even bother to reflect all that much, if we're honest, about the poor princess and her fate. In Vadim, however... We start to see filmmakers showing how this affects um, the female protagonist. So we see her alone in her bedroom, and the, the unhappiness that this is causing her in the bedroom, obviously being a privileged site for her psychology. And then also at the end of the film, she's given a happy ending, which is very very rare in, in early Russian film. So through these sort of these early changes, we start to see a shift from. Um, looking at things from the male point of view to looking at things from the female perspective. And that would be developed much more by later directors. Uh,
0: Now, the type of uh, dance that the female performer uh, does is very significant to how she's perceived, right? So you talk about uh, there's kinds of uh, the Eastern kind of uh, captive dance, the peasant dance, the tango, the gypsy dance. How did these all differ and sort of uh, signal different things about the female character to the viewer?
1: I think this is where it was important to focus on the contemporary um, cultural and social circumstances that the films were made in because the filmmakers don't let their protagonists dance any old form of dance. If they are dancing the tango, for example, there's a reason for that. um, And it's meant to sort of contribute to the characterization of the character in some way or to the themes that the film is putting across. So whereas in the early films, The amateur performances are not prescriptive. They're just women dancing and whatever form of dance they choose. Um, In the later films, when in particular when they become professional performers, they are dancing a controlled dance form with, with very specific cultural meanings. So if we want to think perhaps about the tango, um, that was a new form of dance to Russia, which came from Paris actually in nineteen in the autumn of nineteen thirteen, and it was an immediate phenomenon. It assumed um, the sort of the it became an ideology almost, if you like, with huge public debates about whether it was moral or immoral, huge public debates about what the tango um, represented, and what it said about your politics, if you liked it or didn't like it, and so on. And the film historian Yuri Tsivyan has written a very interesting article on the place of the tango within the cultural landscape um, of 1913. But one of the key meanings that it was, that, had, that it had attached to it in that period in Russia was that it was associated with uninhibited consumption. Okay, So it was a dance that allowed you to sort of express your desires And those desires were desires for things, for objects. And this was sort of expressed through being able to buy everything connected with tango. You could buy tango shoes, tango dresses, tango chocolates, tango underwear. Sivian lists all these wonderful things that you could buy. Um, So Bauer uses this dance form to characterise one of the heroines in a film from 1914 child of the big city, who is basically a social climber. She starts the film as um, an orphan. Her mother dies from consumption. And um, when she's a little girl, we see that scene. Then we cut to her as a young woman. She's working as a seamstress um, and clearly unhappy with that job. She, she's dreaming, and intertitle tells us, that she's dreaming of a life of luxury and, and wealth. And so she's on the lookout for a man who can help her achieve that. Um, the man who who helps her achieve that is a romantic. He thinks she's an uncultured, um, innocent woman and he's found his ideal person in her. But through having her dance the tango at the end of the film, Bauer is making it very, very clear that this woman is not the sort of, the innocent 19th century girl he thinks she is. This man is like a character out of a Gorgol or Dostoevsky story, but um, she is this new 20th century woman. She dances the tango and she is out for what she can get. And she's not going to be bothered by any of the moral concerns that 19th century protagonists were bothered about. Um, and what about um, the ballerina? Okay. The ballerina is an interesting figure. She doesn't really appear in acted films until quite late, so 1912, 1913, 1913 actually probably is, um, or maybe even later. But she, So she comes into film a lot later. Um, and partly I think that's due to the fact that it was a less interesting uh, dance form for for filmmakers because they couldn't really see a way in which to make it work for the 20th century woman. So there was a lot of talk around this period um, about ballet being an out, you know, sort of 19th century art form that was outdated. And that was in the air through people like Isadora Duncan, who was extremely, the American dancer, who was extremely well known in Russia at this time. She travelled a lot in Russia. She toured a lot in Russia. And she was a very vocal critic against ballet and dance historians have shown that her form of dance which is often referred to as early modern dance was actually developed as a a rejection of ballet and she rejected to ballet in lots of different ways for lots of different reasons sorry first because she felt that it imposed too many strictures on the on the female body so ballet is a very rigorous art form you have to master lots of um steps which are you know the sort of um, steps that are prescribed by style guides and so on um, but also the costumes she didn't like the fact that the costumes were designed in the way they were to accentuate the female body and also she felt that the characters the protagonists in the classical ballets were limiting so fairies nymphs puppets these are all characters who um, have have limited autonomy so her rejection of ballet is sort of copied in a way by the rejection of the ball of that mode of dancing in um in these films. But what's interesting is that the filmmakers still use this figure, but they use this figure in order to comment on their male protagonists. Because as you might expect by now, these male protagonists love ballerinas. They become obsessed by them and they become entranced by them. They fall in love with them. Um, But by using the distance between their response to the ballerinas and the ballerinas' own sort of response to their lives as as people, not just as performers, um, the the directors can comment on the disjuncture between male views of femininity and female views of femininity in this period. So there's one very interesting – sorry, go on.
0: Oh, I'm sorry, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but it, it seems like when you know when you say these um, ballerinas usually portray nymphs and fairies, it's a very infantilizing role, right, for these dancers. Exactly,
1: and you know they they one about one film by Eugenia Bauer really sort of makes this hammers this point home, if you like, that if we are saying that dance is a form of expression, which is is um, what we've been talking about already, um, how are ballerinas meant to express themselves? They are trapped in these male-created images of femininity, which you know, are 19th century images for the most part. Their movements on stage leave them no room for self-expression. And this was the big thing that Isadora Duncan was rebelling against. She wanted to be able to express herself, her interiority and her own sense of herself as a, as a woman and a person. Ballerinas aren't able to do that because they're following prescribed steps and Bauer really hammers this point home in a film that he made in um, that was released in early 1917 where he casts um, his ballerina figure who's at the centre of the film is mute she, she can't speak Okay, so she, he's making this point twice, not only is the form of dance that she's chosen to, to follow Um, she can't express herself through that but she's mute and she can't express herself at all through words either and that puts her in the position of weakness because she is therefore able to be sort of manipulated her images adopted by the male protagonists who see her as they want to see her not um, as the sort of the modern woman she wears a wristwatch, which is a sign of modernity so they're not able to see her as the modern woman they're just too fixated on on the, the ballerina
0: now, uh, how does the portrayal of female performers as a whole differ from the portrayal of non-performing women in these films?
1: That's an interesting question. To be honest, in these in the films discussed in the book, there aren't really very many non-performing women because the films tend to focus on um, one character, uh, one protagonist, and that tends to be the performer. Um, so they tend to be peripheral, not really of much interest, and uniformly weaker okay so this is quite interesting that the characters who are not performers and yet who are placed in similar narratives to narratives that do feature performers they're shown to be weaker so a useful sort of comparison to make that point is two films made in 1914 by Yevgeny Bauer so one I've talked about quite a lot already Child of the Big City um, and then a film made only two months later, called Silent Witnesses. Now, these films sort of basically hinge on the same plot. A rich um, aristocratic man seduces a working-class girl. And what happens? That's that's the sort of interest of the film. So in the first film, Child of the Big City, the aristocratic man seduces the working-class girl who knows exactly what she wants from this aristocratic man, which is his money, that's all. So she spends all his money, ruins him, and leaves him moving on to the next guy. She's the character who is the tango dancer. She is this strong 20th century woman who has all the sort of the amorality of the new age that Bauer's talking about. By comparison, in, in Silent Witnesses, made two, two months later, the main character, Nastia, isn't a performer. She's a house girl working in a house of an aristocratic man. Again, she's seduced by him, but she's romantic she falls in love with him she wants him to to marry her although that's not expressed she just wants to be with him um, and in the end this man dumps her of course and marries another woman who is also cast as a tango dancer albeit less obviously than in the earlier film and the the film closes with this poor sad girl walking down the corridor of the house Having just seen the master and his his wife leave, and knowing that her sort of her honor is ruined and that she can't have the man that she loves, so that for me is the main difference. The performers are strong, they're active, they're dynamic. They might not be moral, but they they know what they want and they get it. And non performers tend to be weaker and um, not able to stand up for themselves.
0: Uh, so there's there's so many more questions I want to ask you, but of course, uh, for for the sake of time, I just have one more, um, which is if you could just talk a little bit about um, did these kind of female characters performers uh, enjoy longevity in Russian cinema history, or were they reconfigured in Soviet cinema, or did they sort of disappear?
1: That's an interesting question. Some of these types, in particular types that were really associated with this period were picked up in the Soviet period and often used as a sort of shorthand way of indicating decadence or corruption. So that particularly happens with um, the tango dancers, I think. So a film made by Sergei Eisenstein in 1924 called The Strike has a wonderful sequence in the bosses, um, one of the factory workers' houses, where there's food let at food-laden tables that's being contrasted with the striking workers who have no food at all um, and on this table laden with grapes and roast meat and bread and all this wonderful food and wine, their entertainment is a pair of tangoing dwarfs and it's an Eisensteinian attraction but it's also a sort of comment on the decadence and the grotesqueness of this regime which is has so much while the workers who support it have nothing um, that sort of continues as well a bit later we get the use of the tango motif in films from the 30s such as i'm thinking in particular of alexandra's film the jolly fellows from 1934 where it's used to ridicule the bourgeois characters the bourgeois characters in that film the wonderful sequence if your listeners know it of Yelena strolling down the beach with a huge parasol and, and overdressed while everybody else is just relaxing on the sands that the accompaniment accompaniment to that is tango music. And I think the oriental dancer is used in a similar way as well. Um, so, for example, another film from 1934, uh, by Koznetsef and Trauberg's Youth of Maxime, the sort of the thoughtlessness of the upper classes is evoked very strikingly at the start of that film by a figure of a woman who's dressed up as an oriental, oriental dancer. And she's on a sleigh as it careers through the snowy streets of St. Petersburg on New Year's Eve at the end of 1909, um, oblivious to all the underground revolutionary action that's going on um, with the serious characters. So again, it's this sort of image of the thoughtless decadence and um, indifference of the upper classes. Soviet cinema would also sort of pick up its own performer types, Um, You think of Lubov Alova, for example, the star of all of Alexandrov's musicals, who in the first um, few becomes a sort of performer. But that's probably another book in itself. And she's also just one of the types of women who come in in the Soviet period, along with the worker and the mother and so on.
0: Dr. Morley, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Rachel Morley, a lecturer in Russian cinema and culture at School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London, about her book Performing Femininity, Woman as Performer in Early Russian Cinema. Thank you again, Dr. Morley.
1: Thank you, Diana. Thank you for the great questions.